Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's October 10th, 1967, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. So I thought we might begin with a bit of a jurisprudential thought experiment, as all the best podcasts obviously do, which is this. If Elon Musk were to develop a fleet of hyperspace starfighters, blast into outer space and conquer an alien civilization in bloody intergalactic battle, would he legally own and control all the planets belonging to those hypothetical extraterrestrials? Well, fortunately, I have an answer to this question right here. And the answer is, let me just quickly check, no. That is according to the Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, including the Moon and other celestial bodies, an agreement better known these days as the Outer Space Treaty, which came into force today in history in 1967. Yeah, and back in the early and mid-60s when the Cold War and the space race were two of the most high-profile subjects dominating the world stage, you can see how a treaty governing warfare beyond the bounds of Earth's atmosphere would seem like a sensible idea. But it took a while to put it into place, which was good actually for the UN's Committee on Outer Space. They had been trying without success to agree on a definition of outer space since they'd been established in <laughs> 1958. Yeah, you feel like they just wanted the business cards, you know? <laughs> Who do you work for? Uh, the UN Committee on Outer Space. <laughs> must have seemed pretty cool. In 1958. Um, But this kind of drive toward actual legislation that the world could abide by began on September the 22nd, 1960, when President Eisenhower, it was then, proposed that the principles of the Antarctic Treaty of 1959 be applied to outer space and the celestial body. So there was this awareness, I mean, basically from an American perspective, there was awareness that, hey, Russia might start firing WMDs at us from from Intergalactica. Maybe we should all agree not to do that. But he thought as a template, why don't we just use this thing we've just done for the Antarctic? Because it's a similar risk a land grab, a rush to territorial claims like what plagued the exploration of Antarctica in the first half of the 1900s. Let's let's stop that. Let's stop any country claiming a planet or asteroid as its own. And that's why it's quite interesting. There are similarities between the Outer Space Treaty and the Antarctic Treaty of 1959. Yeah, there was another impetus driving it as well, which was that in 1957, when the USSR launched Sputnik into orbit around the Earth, it really came to challenge this previously held property law principle that dated all the way back to the 13th century, known as the Ad Coelum Doctrine, the full Latin title of which roughly translates to whoever's is the soil, it is theirs all the way to the heaven and all the way to hell. The idea was that if you owned land, you know, a country or a person, uh, you owned it all the way up to the sky and all the way down to hell, you know. Mm. And so suddenly when there was this uh, satellite orbiting around the earth, orbiting in places that would technically be owned by other countries because it sat above uh, their land mass, then they needed to come up with some sort of way of regulating who was able to do things in that particular space above that particular land. 
Yeah, but Sputnik 1 and 2 were launched using an intercontinental ballistic missile. It didn't have a warhead, so it was not actually being used as a bomb. So so the Sputnik satellites would not actually have been banned under the Outer Space Treaty, but it raised the general spectre of, you Mm. know, missiles in space. So ultimately, the treaty would ban weapons of mass destruction, including nuclear ones from space. That's Article 4. But not other weapons. Guns are fine. Mm. Your cosmonauts can take up whatever knives they like. It, It doesn't ban any conventional weapons, non-nuclear bombs, rockets, missiles, etc. It doesn't ban unmanned satellites being used for military purposes. I mean, all of these loopholes were a result of the initial Soviet reluctance to participate. You know, the first proposals were put forward by the US and its allies in 1957. And that, you know, modelled, as you mentioned, after what had been done in Antarctica, wanted to reserve space exclusively for peaceful and scientific purposes. But the Soviets rejected this as it would have prohibited intercontinental ballistic missile testing, which is what they wanted to do, and military missiles like like Sputnik. Yeah, so in 1966, there was a month-long meeting in Geneva. So that's when things are really feeling like they might actually happen. President Johnson, as it was then, said publicly, I'm convinced we should do what we can, not only for our generation, but for future generations. I believe the time is ripe for action. So there was a sense, finally, this might happen. Representatives of 28 countries met to draft the treaty, despite, at that point, tensions between the US and Russia over Vietnam. And one of the sticking points then was disagreement about commercial involvement in space. Mm. Interesting, considering where we're up to now, as you alluded to in your introduction, Arian. The Soviets wanted to ban that entirely. Um, The US was kind of essentially saying, well, we believe in private enterprise. We want a provision for private companies to be able to go into space in the future. So the compromise that they reached was a sensible one for the world, which is essentially that commercial companies are the ultimate responsibility of the state. Mm. So, yeah, individuals can develop rockets. It's really going to be America's problem if an American company goes and blasts everyone to hell. Yeah, and the USSR was also concerned about another thing, that eventually, because they pushed so hard for this, it went into uh, the treaty as Article 5, which was the guarantee of the safe return of astronauts and cosmonauts from the other nations territory. And I suppose they were particularly worried that, you know, once they started sending people into space, as they came down again, they could be held Mm. hostage. And then, you know, you could get a sort of geopolitical advantage of some kind by keeping those highly trained people as your prisoners. And so all of this meant that there was a, a great deal of negotiation that went on to, you know, even to arrive at this thing that is really surprisingly short and to the point. The Outer Space Treaty is really quite succinct. It has just 17 articles, some of which are as short as a single sentence. Article 2 reads, for example, Outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, is not subject to national appropriation by claim of sovereignty, by means of use or occupation, or by any other means. So, you know, that's the entire clause, and this is one of 17. So, you know, this was a really short document, but it required this immense amount of uh, juggling between the nations and their various interests, particularly the US and the USSR, to get it over the line. Yeah, and I wonder if one of the reasons that the USSR was so preoccupied with the clause about returning astronauts who, you know, went astray either in space or by falling to land in enemy territory was because that was actually one of the only scenarios that was likely to maybe happen in the near future. The signatories did laud this as being a big achievement. You know, LBJ said it was an inspiring moment for the human race. But in reality, it was largely symbolic because neither power had the inclination or the capability to weaponize space effectively. And this was a far easier 
easier way to, you know, show willing than actually addressing what was going on on Earth, which was the arms race. You know, as a New York mm. Times editorial pointed out that neither side seems interested in military exploitation of space, if only because it appears that such weapons of mass destruction could be launched more effectively and cheaply by weapons based on Earth. But at least it focused government minds on risks that could happen by going into space. Um, so, for example, bringing back um, kind of alien bugs, for example, as in diseases rather than insects, um, to Earth, you know, and infecting people. I mean, it, it, there's nothing very specific about that in this. As you said, it's, it's pretty short, this document, but the spirit of let's all be jolly careful when we go into space, folks, is very much there. <laughs> and I think that's worth spelling out, isn't it, to politicians? Like, of course, actual scientists and astronauts who are working on this stuff would have been very, very aware of cross-contamination. Mm. But it's maybe something that politicians hadn't really considered with each other. You know, th these activities, if we don't fund them properly, if we don't research them properly, if we don't consider them properly, could end up with an existential threat to mankind we haven't even considered by what we bring back on our boots. Yeah. You know, at least spelling those kinds of risks out in black and white. I mean, it's the pivotal agreement, isn't it, that laid out the principles that we have a multilateral agreement to try and do good up here. Yeah, it is astonishing when you look back on it. You know, this this idea that all space exploration should be done, quote, for the benefit and in the interests of all countries. That's such a laudable ambition that sounds entirely ripped out of the pages of Star Trek. You know, it really yeah. does sound like something that an enlightened society would have arrived at rather than, you know, two countries in the US and the USSR that after all were at one of the absolute nadirs of their political tensions. But even that provision, you know, the idea that once we get up there and once we start looking around in space, everything belongs to all of us, is now coming to be tested in a way that it wasn't being tested in the immediate years after this thing was signed, when, after all, you couldn't get very far in space. But now there are these private companies such as Moon Express, which has the uh, ambition of going to the moon in the very near future and then starting to mine the lunar surface for water and other resources that it finds up there. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, the treaty puts those sorts of private enterprises in a bit of a legal grey area. You know, they're explicitly forbidden from doing so, but the treaty makes assigning countries responsible for their national activities. The US attempted to do a little bit of cake having and cake eating with the Space Act of 2015, which says that US citizens can engage in commercial exploitation of space, but the US itself makes no claim to sovereignty. And that raises, again, the other prospect of colonisation by proxy. You know, if countries start saying that they don't want to be responsible for what their you know, the countrymen and women are doing up in space, who is going to enforce the rules that were put into place by the treaty and also the rules that weren't put into place? Yeah. I mean, even at the time when all all of this was being debated and signed and then put into force as it was on this day. You know, you can see why it wasn't necessarily like in the news as much as it could have been because it's not the sexy side of space adventure. And even on the day that the treaty was signed, uh, the, the news got bumped from most headlines because a fire erupted during an Apollo spacecraft test which killed all three Apollo 1 astronauts. And obviously that's kind of the bit that grabs the attention. That's the thing that people care about. Well, at least it was space news. That dislodged it from the headlines. This That's is what true. You're going to yeah. say, you know, Twiggy wore a miniskirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that probably led most of the tabloids. That's basically <laughs> tomorrow. 
these women would turn up in San Francisco on a ship having seen only a picture of their groom. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors.